0: I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 4. Today we're going to be reading verses 1 through 13. Today, obviously, we continue on in the Word of God, in the Gospel according to Luke. Before I read, there is a, uh, a word that uh, I struggled with as an early Christian that's in your text. Uh, it's a simple word. It is uh, wilderness. Um, now, when I hear wilderness, I think of wilderness the way it is here, you know, dense foliage and trees and and the stuff that you used to go, if you were like me, uh, slashing through with your pocket knife as a kid pretending you were a jungle explorer or something like that. That is not wilderness, though, the way uh, that it occurs in Israel. It's interesting when you go to Israel, you don't have to go far from any major uh, water source uh, in terms of kilometers before you get to uh, a vast area of sand and rock and just barrenness. Uh, There's a lot of that kind of wilderness. The word eramos here refers to the desert. So Jesus was in a blighted area where there was Uh, neither water nor food. That's the word. Well, let's uh, go before the Lord, though, and ask for his help before we read. Heavenly Father, I do ask that you would be with us here today, that you would be the light of our minds, and that you, O Lord, would illuminate us inwardly so that we would understand your word. If we do not have your power within us, how can we hope to understand it or apply it, Lord? We need your Holy Spirit. And help us, O Lord, to have open ears. We know the devil loves to tempt us at this moment to think on things that while they are not sinful normally, Lord, they are sinful when we are paying attention to them instead of to you and to what you have to tell us. Remind us of that. I ask for your help, O Lord, to stay on the right path myself and to teach your people nothing that is not in keeping with your word. Lord, I am a man with feet of clay, uh, and I am a dying man speaking to dying men. But I pray, Lord, that you would give me your word, Lord, this day, that I might share it with them. And may I decrease and Christ increase. In whose name we pray. Amen. 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 Luke chapter 4, I'm beginning at verse 1. And I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So you probably know, my favorite dictionary, bar none, is Webster's, uh, Noah Webster's, that is, 1828, American Dictionary of English Language, uh, Noah Webster Started his life as what they call a free thinker, or what they called a free thinker at the time. Somebody who was inclined towards Unitarianism and Atheism and so on. And he became a Christian, more specifically a Calvinistic Christian, in 1808 and joined the uh, Congregational Church and became a stalwart there. And his dictionary which he produced in 1828, 20 years after his conversion, is full of pithy quotes. I love them. Uh, Examples that you would never see in a modern dictionary. He quotes extensively from Shakespeare, various poets, and various theologians, and of course, uh, the Bible again and again and again. This year, I have been trying. I say I've been trying, although Facebook is doing its utmost to stop me. I'm not joking. I can't even post on my my wall at this point. Uh, They won't tell me why. It's kind of Kafkaesque. I'm I'm guilty of something, apparently. But uh, in any event, I'm trying to post one definition from Webster's 1828 dictionary every day. And the definition for today, for obvious reasons, is temptation. What is temptation? Well, according to Noah Webster, temptation, which is a noun, is the act of tempting, enticement to evil arguments by flattery or by the offer of some real or apparent good. And then he quotes Luke 4, when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. It is also solicitation of the passions, enticement to evil proceeding from the prospect of pleasure or advantage. Or third, the state of being tempted or enticed to evil. When by human weakness you are led into temptation, resort to prayer for relief. That's uh, Noah Webster's advice there. For uh, The fourth definition would be trial. Lead us not into temptation, as the Lord's Prayer puts it. And then finally, number five, that which is presented to the mind as an inducement to evil and then he quotes John Dryden with a, uh, a quote that we should commit to memory. Dare to be great without a guilty crown. View it and lay the bright temptation down. Good advice from uh, poet laureate John Dryden there. Well, one of the things we need to remember as we think, though, about temptation is that it is not sinful just to be tempted. The world is literally full of temptations. And sometimes, the things that tempt us, yes, they are sinful in and of themselves. One can only, uh, you know, only has to think of pornography. Don't actually think of pornography, but uh, as an example, pornography and prostitution. But often, the object of temptation is not a sin in and of itself. I'll give you a few examples. A slice of cake, a $20 bill, a pretty wife, a prom- uh, or a promo- uh, bleh, promotion at work. Uh, these are all not in of themselves sinful. However, eating the slice of cake if it's your 12th, taking the $20 bill out of someone else's wallet, seducing your neighbor's pretty wife, or lying to get the promotion at work, all of these are, in fact, sins. And often... That's the case with the things the devil tempts us with. He offers us things that in and of themselves aren't bad. It's just the method that he suggests that we use to get them is. And it's the moment that we give in to that, that we move from simply being tempted to sinning, breaking the law of God. It's not for nothing that the devil obviously is called the tempter from the time of man's innocency. The devil has been tireless in his temptation of mankind. Let's see that actually. Turn with me if you would in your Bibles all the way back to the beginning and we'll look at Genesis chapter 3 together where we see the deceiver, the tempter, deceiving and tempting Eve in the garden. And there we read this. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, what a contrast we have between the two narratives about temptation that we we've read today. We read Luke 3 and then we went back and we read Genesis 3. In Genesis 3 we see the first Adam tempted once by the devil and failing. And that not in the midst of a wilderness, he's not in a desert, he's in the midst of a garden, a paradise. Everything that he could possibly need is provided for him well he only has to put out his hand and there it is but the devil note this tempted them to want the only thing in the garden that God said they couldn't have the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil by contrast in Luke chapter 4 we see Jesus the second Adam tempted three times in the desert in the very midst of Uh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter four, not Luke chapter three, um, tempted three times in the desert in the very midst of wanton hardship. And yet Jesus overcomes these temptations. And I want you to keep that contrast between the failure of the first Adam and the success of the second Adam, the triumph of the second Adam properly in mind as we continue to discuss these things. Well, we read that immediately after his baptism, Jesus was led into the desert by who? Who led him into the desert? Was it the devil? No, it was the Holy Spirit led him into the devil uh, into the desert, specifically in order that he might be tempted by the devil. And note that, brothers and sisters, it's tremendously important. It was God who led him there. It was God's purpose that he be tempted by the evil one. And remember, in Christ's baptism, Jesus was indelibly associated with sinners, the sinners he came to save. And we see that wherever our parents, as we go through the gospel, you will notice this, wherever our parents, our first parents, that is, Adam and Eve, failed, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, triumphs. The devil waits until the Son of Man is at his weakest. He's been deprived of sustenance for 40 days. This is probably a miraculous fast. God removed uh, Christ's bodily need for ordinary uh, sustenance for 40 days. And uh, the fact is, though, he clearly did not remove the pangs of hunger that are associated with a lack of food. We all know that uh, hunger can drive us absolutely mad. Snickers jokes about, you know, hangry. Uh, I get that way. You know, I go for a few hours without food and begin to grumble. Forty days without food. Imagine how that would affect you. Well, suffice it to say, therefore, that the statement, he was hungry, is one of the greatest understatements in the Bible there. He was famished. And that's the point where he uh, is given this first temptation. And the first temptation is in keeping with that. It's obvious. It's a material temptation. Make food. The devil says to him, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And note that the devil says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, he knows it. He says to improve, you're the son of God. And the same thing is going to be thrown at Christ in the Gospels again and again, not just by the devil, but by the Pharisees, for instance, in their constant demand for signs, if you are the son of God, do something miraculous and showy. You know, right in the sky, I am God, using clouds. Then we'll believe you. If he had done that, they'd look and say, "Well, oh, it's a natural phenomenon, something." You know, that's a, it's probably evolution going on with the clouds or something. Finally, they've evolved into letters. But obviously, signs are not going to convince the devil to worship him. So the sign is not for the devil. Uh, The devil had seen him in his glory in heaven anyway. He's calling upon him to doubt inwardly his mission. Would God have left you here without anything to eat for so long if you are the son of God? Better make sure. Test your powers. Make some food for yourself. But what does it matter if we have material blessings if we do not have the blessing of God? What does it matter if we have the food of this present world if we do not have the manna that comes from heaven? And Jesus does not fall for that one. The second temptation is a spiritual temptation. This is, I, I think, probably the, the most tempting of the temptations. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil says to him, all authority I will give you and their glory all you have to do is fall down and worship me. It should lead us to ask a question, right? Does the devil actually have the ability to grant that authority? Does he have the ability to give Christ what he offers him? And this is something very important because, note this, everything that the devil offers to you in a temptation beyond the initial thing that you get, like the fruit, for instance, that Eve had in her hand, never comes about. He doesn't want to bless you with anything, he is always using these things ultimately to tear you down and to destroy you. The devil is spoken of by Jesus as the ruler of this world in John 12, 31 and 14, 30 and sixteen eleven. But he is only the ruler of this world insofar as God allows him to be. He is not sovereign in any sense. The devil rules nowhere, and that includes hell. The devil will be tormented in hell. He will not rule in hell. We see from the story of Job, which I hope you've all read, where power to afflict is granted to him, but it has to be granted to him by God. This is not a case of equal power. The devil is, as Martin Luther put it, still God's devil. This is important to remember. Because when you are in the midst of temptation, remember that ultimately the temptation that you are under is something that God has allowed to happen. He's still in charge and therefore he has a purpose in it. So do not despair in that moment and say, I'm being afflicted by the devil. Woe is me. There's no hope. I have to give in. Also, he only, that is the devil, has power over mankind to the extent that they surrender themselves in sin to him. It may be that they go with their natural fallen inclination, but nonetheless, it's still their choice. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? The devil. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. They want to do his will. But even in that, note that when they do his will, and even if it's properly evil, even the greatest evil of them all, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, for instance, yet still they are doing God's will ultimately, not the devil's. I must frustrate the living daylights out of him. No matter what evil I accomplished, ultimately he turns it to good. And that's the way that the Lord works it, because he's sovereign. Always remember this. The truth of Psalm 24.1 remains true yesterday, today, and forever. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell therein. He is sovereign over all things. Even the powers of darkness cannot act without God's permissive will. Still, that doesn't change the fact that the temptation here is keen. Christ has come into the world to establish the kingdom of God. But that can only happen through his humiliation and his suffering, by his being willing to go to the cross for us. Even were it possible for Christ to obtain, and it wasn't, for him to obtain all the kingdoms of the world, by falling down before Satan, by not going to the cross, and by sinning, we would be damned forever. The mission would fail. It's only by doing the will of the Father in that, that he can accomplish the Lord's design. So, but imagine still the the temptation of not going to the cross, not having to endure the wrath of the Father poured out upon him, not having to drink down that bitter cup to its very dregs. And remember that Christ is not going to the cross to lay down his life for his friends, he's going there to lay down his life for enemies, rebels, sinners, you and I without Jesus, basically. But Christ is not going to sin by worshiping the devil in order to get what he can't give him anyway. And so that temptation also is resisted. And then the third temptation. This time the devil tempts Jesus to make a vainglorious display of his power and deliberately put himself in danger, thus testing the faithfulness of God In protecting his son, he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and says, throw yourself down from here. Don't worry, the angels will stop you from dashing your feet upon the stone. And note that the devil actually misquotes scripture. The devil loves to twist scripture, either changing it or taking it out of context or making it say exactly the opposite of what it actually means. Psalm 91 is what he's quoting. Psalm 91:11. For he shall give his angels charge over you, to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now, what would him have throwing himself off the pinnacle of the temple have accomplished? See how I love you. Ah! You know that, nothing. It would have been a testing of his absolute trust in God. And that was not in keeping with what Jesus had come to do. He was born under the law. He endures a life of of trial and humiliation. And he's found faithful in all things. And then he comes into the world to preach. To preach what? The gospel. Let us go into the next towns, he says to his disciples in Mark 1.38, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I've come forth. He didn't come to do showy miracles in and of themselves. He came to preach the gospel. Now the miracles that he did attested to his divinity. They, they proved that he was who he said he was and also that what he preached was true. But if at the beginning of his ministry he had done this, this showy and pointless miracle for himself in the midst of the capital city, it would have been contrary to the entire thrust of his whole ministry. And as we've seen, it would have been a sin. And a sin that would have declared before all the heavenlies that he was not the sinless son of God and thus not able to perform the task for which he was sent into the world. But that, after all, has always been the devil's plan, to thwart the ministry of Christ, to stop redemption from happening. By tempting Jesus to sin, he hopes to scuttle the entire plan of redemption, and to stop the coming of the kingdom, and thus to seal men in sin and misery and death. He's like uh, one of those bad dictators, the overused example of Hitler, desiring to pull the entire world down with him to hell to destroy Germany utterly. He issued orders that that all of Germany should be essentially destroyed, saying that all the good Germans were dead already. He wanted this giant Gotterdammerung, if you're familiar with Wagner's work, the death of the gods scene of catastrophe, triumph uh, of evil. It would have been uh, hideous had the Germans actually carried that out, but that's what the devil wants to do with you. He wants you to despair. He wants to destroy you. He wants you to sink into the grave covered in sin and shame. And so Jesus resisting is of critical importance. The very kingdom of God and your salvation and my salvation was at stake here. Christ resists the temptations, and thus he triumphs over the devil. Now, the devil's not finished. He's going to continue to tempt Jesus. He's going to tempt him through the Pharisees. He's going to tempt him through the Sadducees. He's going to tempt him through his own family members. He's going to tempt him through his own disciples. Jesus isn't joking when he says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, for he knows where this inclination trying to stop him from going to the cross is coming from. And don't for a second fall into the trap of thinking that it's easy for Christ in this moment. Well, he's the sinless son of God. He could never fall into temptation. So he just basically coasted through this, yeah, 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 devil, go, you know. That, that's not what happened at all. True, the son of God would never have fallen, but that does not mean that he did not feel the terrible power of those temptations in his manhood and struggle with them. Westcott notes, sympathy with the sinner in his trial does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of the strength of the temptation to sin, which only the sinless, uh, sinless rather, can know in its full intensity. He who falls yields before the last strain. Jesus resisted to the uttermost. How many of us resist sin to the uttermost? Oh, I... Today I'm going to try to resist into the middlemost, not the uttermost, you know. And that's, that's hard enough. But, no, he resisted to the uttermost. Throughout his ministry, Jesus was tempted by the world and the devil. And though he was tempted to the uttermost, he did not fail. By contrast, think about this. Adam fell in one moment, very, very quickly, to the dual assault of the world and the devil. Now, let's, let's talk about this uh, application, the application of all of this to, to us. Hopefully, some of them will be already apparent to you. But how did Christ overcome temptation? Do you see how he answers the devil again and again? Well, popular opinion says, no, that's not what he said, is it? What does he answer? He says, it is written, it is written, it has been said. And then he quotes. What is he quoting? He's quoting the word of God. Okay, 100 brownie points, if tell—if anybody can tell me where all three of those quotes come from. Which book? Deuteronomy. Very good. Okay, you get your 100 brownie points later. Not, not on this side of eternity, but sorry. Anyway, but very well done in knowing that. First application of all of this. It is a good thing that Jesus brought his study Bible with him into the wilderness, right? <laughs> so when the devil came against him, he's like, oh, wait a minute. I, I saw a footnote about this. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's not what happened. Jesus had no written Bible with him in the wilderness except the Bible that was written on tablets of flesh. Jesus was intimately acquainted with the scriptures from diligent study. You remember, he increased in, in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. He heard the word, and he stored it up in his heart. Now, what was he studying that brought about this great growth in wisdom? It is the word. And so you see the application of this, I hope, immediately to your own lives. How many of you, faced with sudden temptation, have had a copy of the Bible in your hands? I, can't, I, I, I actually sat there for a while going, has that ever happened to me? I was like, no, it, it, actually it has not. Maybe there's a connection there as well. Temptation doesn't tend to come at you while you're like, hey, Bible, <laughs> you know, when you're reading it. Although sometimes, even when we read the Bible, the devil can tempt us to think on things that are inappropriate. Had the time and opportunity to uh, flip through it, searching for direction in that situation. Has that happened when you were tempted? Generally speaking, no. So, at that moment when somebody comes to you and they set before you an offer, I'm going to pay you this much if you'll just sell cars for me on a Sunday. Or where the boyfriend or the girlfriend is pushing you to have sex now before you get married and putting before you a lot of alluring, uh, allurements to that. We're finally alone. Why not? Uh, I think Paul says something about that somewhere. Oh, get off for a second. I need, to, uh, I need to read my Bible. That doesn't happen. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't happen. Either we have in that moment the Bible in our hearts or we are in trouble. If you had the Bible with you in many of those situations, you'd only be thinking, where can I put this? I'll find it later on. (laughs) Secondly, brothers and sisters, only God's word can infallibly tell us what is sin and what isn't. One of the things that the devil often tells us to do is don't think this is sin. Does God's word really say the... He goes back again and again to that, that first way of phrasing the temptation. Has God really said? We need to remember that sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. When am I sinning? When I am not doing what God has told me to do or where I am doing what God has told me not to do. But if you don't know his law, then how do you know that what is being presented to you is actually sin? And... This is the third and final application. It's not just knowing the word of God that will, will safeguard you from temptation. Remember how well Solomon knew the word of God. I mean, he wrote portions of the word of God, and yet he still succumbed to the temptation to marry thousands of women, particularly foreign women, or to have actually many, many wives and many, many concubines. This is critical. It's not just knowing it, but trusting it, trusting the word, and believing in the word. Why did Eve fall? Because she didn't know what God had said? No, Adam had told her what God said about the tree, but she didn't believe God in that moment. She trusted instead the devil. Has God indeed said, did he really say don't do that? Do you think he was doing that for the right reason? Or was he just trying to stop you from being gods like him? He induced her to doubt the truth of the word of God. And she did. Now, note this. Because it's the same for us as well. We are always tempted to distrust the word of God most at exactly the points where we are going to be most tempted the sins we are most tempted to enter into. Isn't it odd, for instance, how men and women are tempted to uh, who are tempted to sexual sin tend to doubt the word of God at exactly the places where it teaches most precisely on that subject. Why? Because they want to give in to that particular temptation. Therefore, they're going to try to remove it from the Word of God. For, uh, as an example, I mean, we can, it's, it's sort of too easy to go to the perversions. Well, let's talk about heterosexual people instead. Heterosexual men and women who have no problem condemning perversion, condemning homosexuality, for instance, or transgenderism, but have great doubt about what the Bible clearly says, again and again, about fornication before marriage or adultery. Outside of marriage. Well, it's not that bad. No, the the word of God says it is that bad. Think about adultery. In the Old Testament, what was the penalty for adultery? Death. Do you think that God would have made it a death penalty offense if it wasn't serious? No, clearly not. Not. But wherever our hearts are most rebellious, that's where the temptation to change the word of God, doubt the word of God, is going to come at us. If you're a woman and you want to be ordained, you are going to be very tempted not to believe what Paul says very clearly in two different books about that particular subject or the example given throughout the scriptures. If you are a husband who is tired of of laying down his life literally, for his family, you are going to be very tempted about what the Bible says in terms of sacrifice and what we must be willing to endure. Brothers, sisters, it goes on like that. Wherever you are most likely to be tempted, that's where the devil is going to tempt you to doubt God's word. I mean, think about this. The devil is not wise. Not, not wise at all. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. He hates the Lord. It's not a reverent fear. But he's not stupid. He's wily. He is not going to tempt you with things that don't tempt. He's going to tempt you with the things that make you salivate. And often they're going to be good things, but he's going to say, get them in the wrong way. One of the ways that he does that constantly is through career. Career. I cannot tell you how many times I have seen men, and I know this is, I'm I'm doing what, what do they call it at this point? Uh, The pastor's meddling again. Um, There are so many men who, because of their careers, are tempted to make choices that are spiritually disastrous for their families and for themselves. One of them is to move, because of their career, someplace where there is no good church. And they'll Sometimes they'll make excuses in their minds. Well, you know, we can drive two hours on a Sunday one way. No, you can't. <laughs> it's not going to happen. And certainly, do you think you're going to have great congregational fellowship? All right, let's see. If I get home at four, it takes an hour and a half to get to the church. And then uh, we don't eat dinner. And then we do the Bible study. And we come home. And everybody's exhausted. I'm not up for that. Are you up for that? I'm not up for that, honey. Okay, let's skip it this week. Well, we skipped it the last 13 weeks. Well, then 14 won't matter. Come on. I'm tired. Aren't you tired? I'm tired. Yeah, let's... let's. Why is it the kids don't seem to know the Word of God? I don't know, honey. I can't think of it. But I'm exhausted. Let's go to bed. You know, we do make those decisions. And we say to ourselves, well, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm providing for my family. I am... It's not wrong to be ambitious in the good sense. I, I want to ascend. And so we make those decisions, and they have terrible effects. The devil knows you. He knows God's word as well. He knows how to misapply it, and how, I I gave you the example of officers, but uh, children should want to please their parents, right? At school, what's the thing that really pleases parents? Simple. Grades! Good grades, right? So shouldn't we be doing anything that we can to get those good grades and please our parents? wait a minute. (laughs) Define anything (laughs) there. You just threw that one in. Because if the study group is meeting on Sunday, should I be going? Really? No. There are certain things we should not be doing to get good grades and plead as our parents. I mean, we can go beyond just studying on Sunday. Cheating. I I speak to my friends, they're like, uh, whoever invented chat, these are friends who teach in higher education, whoever invented chat GPT, I want to strangle him sometimes. You know, before you had the Google checker, but now we have AI making up papers on the spot. He's like, usually I can tell because suddenly they're using verbiage that they've never used before. But nonetheless, it's a great temptation to use all of those things that uh, constitute cheating to get those good grades we know our parents want. But that's trying to get a good thing the wrong way. Now, don't think also that you can stand against temptation by your own power. Many Christians say i 'll struggle for a little while until I have to give in. God will understand i I have resisted a little, but at that point you 're not really that much better than the worldling who says, with Oscar Wilde and Lady windermere's fan, I can resist anything except temptation <laughs> you 've given in how do we What should we do in those moments when we 're tempted and the answer is simply What Jesus told the disciples to do in the garden and they didn't do. What was that? Pray. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Those are my applications, but let me make one final point. All right. Uh, I have just preached on resisting temptation, but I haven't resisted temptation across the board. I have resisted some temptations, and I am happy to. Pat myself on the back for that. But the devil who encourages me to pat myself on the back whenever I resist temptation. Also comes alongside me and says, but you haven't resisted temptation across the board. What does it say in your word? It says, every sin deserves death. You're going to hell. You've sinned. And I imagine that I'm speaking to people who are in the same boat. If you're sinless and perfect, go ahead and raise your hand. Aha gotcha. Well, brothers and sisters, it's because we needed somebody who was sinless and perfect to stand in our place that Christ came into the world. The one who resisted sin to the uttermost is our only hope. We have to flee to him. He can sympathize with us in our weaknesses, like the father who accepts back the prodigal. He loves us, and he will accept us if we come to him, kneel before him, and say, I can't do this myself. I need your righteousness, O Lord. I need your forgiveness. So, yes, you've you've fallen. You've fallen prey to temptation. But that should drive you to Christ, not to despair. In Adam, all men fell. But in the second Adam, we are redeemed by his perfect sinlessness. So if you have not yet... Fled to Christ as your refuge from the stain of falling prey to temptation, to sinning. Then do it today. Don't wait any longer. Especially because you will be powerless to resist temptation without the Holy Spirit within you. You need everything that Christ can give you. Most especially that redemption that only he gives. So flee to him and know his forgiveness. God our Father, we do thank you so much for the example that Christ sets before us. But we know, O Lord, that while we are called upon and we should resist temptation or flee from it, we know, Lord, also that we have all fallen prey to it and we have no hope in and of ourselves. So we pray, O Lord, help us to place our trust in Christ. And having done so, when temptation comes our way, help us to trust in him, And help us, O Lord, to do that which your disciples didn't do, to watch and pray, lest we fall into temptation. O Lord, guard us from the evil one. And we do pray, lead us not into temptation. We pray all these things.